Hey friends, it's Friday, September 27th, 2019. Last night we hosted Nick Monfort, our professor of digital media, for his talk entitled, well, you hear in a second how he maybe wanted to change it. You'll see the full thing anyway in the podcast title, but for website managers out there, yes, it really messed with the line breaks. But it was a great talk with Professor Monfort with a big crowd of grad students, fellow profs, and neighbors from Cambridge. If you're on your phone or at your computer, go to cmsw.mit.edu slash events to see what else we have coming up. Monday night, we're kicking off this semester's poetry series with a multi-poet tribute to the late William Corbett, a legend in MIT and Boston literary circles. And Thursday evening, we feature Helen Elaine Lee, one of our professors of writing, who will be reading from her manuscript for Pomegranate, a book about a recovering addict getting out of prison and trying to stay clean. We hope to see you there. Okay, onward to Nick. Hello, everyone. We're going to get started. Welcome to the CMS Colloquium for this week. Um, I have the pleasure of introducing our very own Professor Nick Montfort as today's CMS Colloquium speaker. He is a poet, he is an MC, he is a creative technologist, and he is a professor of digital media here at MIT, where he also directs the Trope Tank where I'm a research assistant. Uh, the Trope Tank is a lab dedicated to developing new poetic practices by exploring the intersection of computation and language. Uh, Professor Monfort also develops computational art, and he has published multiple books of computer-generated poetry, as well as scholarly books related to platform studies, electronic literature, interactive fiction, new media, and critical code studies. Uh, his practice demonstrates that programming can be a mode of creative inquiry and exploration and can inform artistic and humanistic pursuits instead of just being an instrumental tool for practical applications. Uh, his own creative and scholarly projects reflect this perspective, and it's the topic of his talk today. Uh, so please join me in welcoming Professor Nick Montfort. Thanks very much, Judy. I appreciate that. Um, it was a very kind introduction, and thanks to all of you for coming out, um, even the ones who are obliged to be here because you're in the uh, colloquium as a class. Um, <clears throat> so the normal way to start off uh, a talk, um, certainly in the humanities, is to say, I'm changing my title. Um, <clears throat> it's not the title that was in the program. And uh, so I am changing my title. Uh, I originally had this one, Poet Programmers, Artist Programmers, and Scholar Programmers. What and who are they? And so I'd like to say, you know, what and who are we? Um, and sort of get rid of some of the false modesty uh, in, the, in the first version, because I am going to tell you a little bit about myself and about my projects. This is not meant uh, mainly as an introduction to my work. Um, but I'm going to do that in the context of some of these other projects that have come to my attention that I find uh, really interesting and that I see enabled by people's ability to work with computation in the most general way. So there are plenty of ways that we can engage with computation, we can work with computation, um, and people have been effectively using computational methods uh, throughout uh, different disciplines and uh, interdisciplines. Um, and different practices. But I'm particularly concerned with having people who are themselves 
able to use computation very generally. And in order to do that, um, I think that uh, the best thing to do, maybe not the only thing, but uh, ideally, um, it's becoming a programmer, learning how to program the computer, uh, and learning how to use its computational capabilities very generally. Now, the idea of a poet programmer, artist programmer, or scholar programmer, uh, to me it seems very ordinary because I know a lot of people who are these sorts of things and they identify explicitly this way. Um, but I don't know, from other people's perspectives, some of you who play Advanced Dungeons and Dragons might consider it one of these forbidden character classes, like Paladin Thief, right? It's a combination that can't, can't occur, right? We're not allowed to have, I don't know if that's really a thief, it looks more like Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg over there, but, um, but we're not allowed to, to blend the, um, uh, the programmer and the poet, or the programmer and the artist, or the, or the programmer and the scholar. Uh, and I'm, I am talking about humanistic scholars uh, today because I um, am in the humanities, but uh, uh, things uh, I think uh, similarly could be said about the social sciences, but, uh, um, but I'll, I'll sort of keep to uh, the areas that I know best and the areas in which I work. So when I'm talking about uh, this concept of, of uh, the a poet programmer, artist programmer, I do want to be clear that I, I'm not uh, describing um, projects in which poets and artists hire programmers to do some of the project. Now, people can create some inst interesting installations, books, digital projects this way. That can be done. It's just not the process that I'm talking about today. Right? What I'm talking about is poets and artists who are actually using computation as their artistic medium. Their medium of literary art, their medium of visual art, um, part of their performance practice, and these people program. They write computer programs in order to do this. And I'm also not really talking about your, uh, your standard uh, DH, um, because a lot of the digital humanities activities today are focused around either building a site to share archival material or doing humanistic uh, data analysis, often analysis of text. So I'm discussing something that is certainly compatible with the concept of the digital humanities. Uh, it's done at MIT in some cases, but it's not really the standard thing. Um, and I, I mean, I think you see this if you go to the DH conference or look at uh, DH publications. Um, this is really where humanists program. So we could call it digital, we could talk about digital art, digital poetry, digital humanities, but really if we wanted to be more precise, why don't we say it's, it's computational poetry, computational art, and the computational humanities. Um, and there are, as I say, other people, including people here in Comparative Media Studies and Writing, who undertake this. Uh, Professor Fox Harrell is one of them, and um, uh, your very own um, uh, fellow student Judy Heflin, who, um, who was kind enough to introduce me, is another. And I'm going to say a, a very little bit about a project that Judy and I are working on. Um, you can see that um, uh, CSAIL and my lab, the Trope Tank, have uh, some different photographic uh, resources and budgets <laughs> here. But uh, anyway, um, <coughs> that's <laughs> not why I brought this up. But, uh, but just to mention that there are other people working in these areas. 
So what I want to do is very quickly, because I want to invite some conversation and also some interaction, I can talk about these things. I actually don't like really to put together a slide deck at all. Uh, I prefer to have computer programs running because, hey, what do you know? I've got this computer right in front of me, and I'm talking about computation and digital media. And we could actually just use this to run programs, and we could talk about the programs. Um, but I am going to go through and talk about six projects and introduce them. And then I'd like to invite your questions about those and your discussion about those after I go through these projects quickly. And so these are P5JS by Laura McCarthy, uh, The Deletionist, which is a collaboration I did with Amrith Borsik and Jesper Yule, The Permutated Poems of Brian Geisen, a site that David Putney uh, just launched, I think within the last month. Uh, my project, Curveship, uh, the computer-generated novel, A Noise Such as a Man Might Make, by Milton Laufer, and the Oral Poetics Project, which uh, is ongoing. Uh, it's the only thing that I don't sort of have a demo or an outcome of, but I want to sketch out what we're doing, and uh, that's a project by myself, Sebastian Bartlett, Angela Chang, and Judy Heflin. So first of all, P5JS. Laura McCarthy founded the project. Uh, she is the lead developer of it with a community of collaborators. And um, so what is P5JS? The slogan for it is the power of processing times the reach of JavaScript. So Lauren McCarthy is an alumnus of MIT. And uh, the processing project, the processing programming environment, was developed right there uh, at, uh, I mean, actually, it was also developed in Evrea in Italy, but uh, in John Maida's um, group. and. Uh, uh, Casey Rees and Ben Fry were the initiators of that project. And uh, it processing allows you to create sketches, interactive sketches if you like, animated sketches if you like, that use computation uh, to produce um, mainly things in the visual art, although te text and sound are also supported by processing. So you might create, as Antoinette Bumpley did, something like this as your work in processing. And it is uh, one of the languages and programming environments that um, uh, I use in my book exploratory programming for the arts and humanities. So a few of you are in uh, the course that's using this book this semester. What you see on the cover is, is done in WebGL. It's actually not in, in processing. Um, but part of my point in the book is don't get too hung up on the specifics of programming languages. Learn to program. Um, but processing has been a great uh, benefit for visual artists. A problem that people um, encountered uh, in the recent history of computing is that uh, processing is really based in Java, and um, as the applet was obsoleted, as uh, security issues arose, um, the community really didn't have a way to share their work, which was very important to them, and make that work available on the web. You could still make processing work and put it in an exhibit, but that wasn't what the processing community was about. So what Lauren McCarthy did was uh, create a web-based system, P5JS, that was based on the visual design principles that animated processing, uh, but allowed for work, once again, to live on the web and be shared and to be part of the community. Um, and the project was a technical intervention that Lauren did, and uh, the way in which it was carried out was very community-oriented, and, and it wasn't just uh, a project uh, to bring a new techni technical idea, but it met a need for a community that's uh, uh, working to uh, learn to program to, for people who were existing processing uh, programmers. Um, 
And um, it's also a project, one of the very few projects I know that um, has mostly women developers. Uh, I think Archive of Our Own and Dreamwith are the only other examples I, could, I, I can think of of large uh, open source software projects of that sort. And so, what, so this is one of the things P5.js looks like. This is another thing P5.js looks like. And so this is from Summer of Code 2017, and these are the people, this is Lauren McCarthy on the, uh, on the modestly standing there on the, on the left side, and other enthusiasts of this uh, work and people who are driving the project ahead and part of the community. So that's what it's like to be a programmer artist, one of these people. All right, the deletionist, I'll say a little bit about this project. Um, the project, most, we did meet in person well, once, I think, mostly undertaken remotely, collaboration between Amrith Borsik and Jesper Yule and myself, and Amrith and Jesper were at MIT uh, in different capacities. Um, the way this project manifests itself, well, different ways, but one of the ways was at this exhibit at the end of the last year in uh, Pierogi Gallery uh, in New York City, um, under erasure, curated by um, Heather and Raphael Rubinstein, and so it's actually the only digital piece included in this exhibit about uh, art and poetry dealing with erasure that started with particular materials and then removed text from them to create something new. The deletionist is such a project. It is a system for automated erasure, for generating erasure poetry out of any web page on the web. You just uh, go to the site, drag the, it's the deletionist.com is the site, drag this into your bookmarks bar, and then uh, for any web page, you can click it and make it into something like that. It doesn't always use the same technique. It has a bag of techniques that we developed from analyzing how erasure poetry had been done and what sort of principles uh, might underlie what people used. And so this was a simple alliterative one, but uh, there are uh, many others that it uses. It's also deterministic, so if you go back to exactly the same web page, not a Wikipedia page with a slight edit, but exactly the same web page, you get exactly the same result. In fact, it creates a sort of alternate World Wide Web, which we call the whirl, <laughs> which is an erasure of the phrase World Wide Web. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the permutated poems of Brian Geisen is an amazing um, scholarly project that looks into uh, an and a very important avant-garde uh, computer-generated um, uh, series of poems created by Brian Geisen, mainly known as a painter, but also a poet, someone associated with William Burroughs. And um, uh, he wrote uh, this poem, which I'll read the beginning of. Kick that habit, man. Kick that man habit. Kick habit that man. Kick habit man that. Kick man that habit. Kick man habit that. That kick habit man. That kick man habit. That kick, that habit kick man. That habit man kick. That man kick habit. That man habit kick. So this is the first half of it anyway. You get some of the idea. Um, and uh, oh, I think this is an interesting poem to read. But what, is, what is the habit? I don't know. Like this guy hanging out with the author of Junkie. Um, and uh, you know, uh, it, might, it might have something to do with heroin. Although, who knows? 
these notorious homosexuals might also have a man habit, right? So as you start reading this, you see that actually these strange uh, permutations is what they are. These are permutation poems, like uh, gives rise to certain interpretations. And I've had an interest in this when I went down to the first Code Poetry Slam at NYU. Uh, I wrote a very offhand re-implementation of the permutation poetry system along with a few other things. And, and in my code, I made it clear, look, look um, actually, this program doesn't produce the permutations in the same order that Geisen and Somerville did and that he's published. Uh, you know, feel free to improve it. Well, little did I know. So what David Pockney did was, um, so he's looking at the most famous of the permutation poems, I Am That I Am. This is a short extract of it. It's five, five words long, so many more permutations, right? And um, uh, Brian, Brian Geisen actually read this on the, in BBC radio, and it got the second lowest <laughs> rating of any, <laughs> any program ever. Um, I think, um, and uh, uh, so what David Potney did is he found out, oh, actually, there's a uh, one-line Ruby pro program that allows you to recreate this famous poem by uh, Brian Geisen. And... So that's very interesting, but he also found, as he started to investigate, wait, the actual text, if you look at them, the there are actually variants of all these different po published poems. They don't all have the words occurring in the same order, which many people hadn't noticed. I hadn't noticed, I have to say. Um, and, uh, and he also said, well, up to this point in time, there are a lot of historical permutation algorithms that are documented in computer science papers. So why don't we take the set of words that Brian Geisen used and just have every permutation algorithm in history and allow someone to go through and computationally see what's happening when that permutation algorithm is applied to this code. And then I'll do this project and I'll release it on GitHub in case people want to use it for other purposes or critique it or examine it. Pretty interesting investigation. Um, this is not what people would normally call the digital humanities. Where's the big data? This isn't a, an analysis of some uh, corpus of work, um, some body of images or text or so forth. It's actually a very close reading of one particular piece using these computational and permutational methods and a close reading of the computing literature as it relates to this. All right, I'll say a little bit about my project Curveship. I'll give you 40, 45 seconds of uh, narrative theory to start off with. The essential distinction in narrative theory is between expression and content, sometimes called narrative discourse and story. And what that means is if we have underlying events, they could be real historical events or something that a journalist is learning about and reporting, they could be fictional events, whatever those events are, we can represent them and express them in different ways. We could tell them in a different order than the chronological order in which they occurred. Um, we could uh, tell them in the past tense or the present tense, changing the sort of time of narrating or time of speaking. There's all sorts of different things we could do. We can tell them from different perspectives. This is an example in comic art where Matt Madden uh, shows us a series of not very interesting events. And he, re he shows that the same underlying events 
in the comic medium specifically can be narrated different ways. You can do it in one panel or you can do it in 30. Right? So the idea that the expression can vary is an essential one there. I have this system curve shift that will automatically vary the expression. It's a text generation system. It's a natural language generation system. And it will automatically vary the way that uh, underlying series of represented events appear. And just recently, I have a very, very preliminary uh, JavaScript version of this, which I uh, threw out to my um, interactive narrative class. And so this is from that version. You can see the, maybe you can't see, depending upon where you're sitting. But um, if you're close enough, uh, you can see that on the left, you have a story that's told uh, in chronological order. And um, uh, it, um, it's actually told in the, uh, in the pluperfect. Uh, and on the right-hand side, uh, the story is told um, uh, in reverse order, in a sort of retrograde fashion. Uh, the first utterance is present tense. A bank teller weeps, and then it steps back and tells the others in past tense. That's done automatically by the system. And furthermore, one of these characters here, uh, the, uh, the guard, is made into the narrator, the eye of the story, and one of the characters, the, uh, the twitchy man or the fake bank robber, is uh, made into the you of the story. So that's a little on curve shift. I want to tell you about A Noise Such as a Man Might Make by Milton Laufer. Um, this is a, um, as it says, a novel, but it's a computer-generated novel. Let me read a bit of it to you. The Sleep. We have a little boy. What are we going to do? You have to drink, he said. I'll give him the belly meat of a big fish. The female made a wild, panic-stricken, despairing fight that soon exhausted her and all the way to the coast. He didn't know sharks had such handsome, beautifully formed tails. I did. Lots of them? We do. Do you think I lie to you? I mustn't try for the head. I'm starving, man. I done what you said. Listen to the kid. You tried to kill us. They might try to. This might sound familiar to some of you, depending upon your engagement with uh, 20th and 21st century American literature uh, that is focused on masculinity. Um, uh, it does draw upon two uh, well-known American novels as its sources. Um, and uh, those two source texts, it's still a very, very compact work. It's still not a big data type of project or work. Uh, this is in my series of books, Using Electricity, which was published by Counterpath, a nonprofit press in Denver. And there's really just two pages of code at the end of this book that um, show the entire process of how the book was generated. So here we have uh, work by a uh, poet programmer, literary artist programmer, and Milton has many other projects that are represented online. This happens to be a print book project. Um, and it's a project that uh, um, accomplishes a great deal because of the very intentional selection of its source texts and um, the uh, tuning and use of this method. I have to say, I recently looked with a group of people at some GPT-2 generated text, um, also drawing on two source texts that I knew very well. And um, 
I just, I, I thought it didn't do it as well as this. You actually were spending, a, you had a much, much more intricate, elaborate algorithm. Uh, you were running that Amazon web server and creating uh, uh, a thousand times as many carbon emissions. And this actually, in a very simple and straightforward way, uh, presented a more compelling project. So um, I'm not going to prove that to you, but I think it's interesting that a very simple approach like this um, can do something that, you know, some people find compelling to read. So I'm going to tell you just a little in closing about this oral poetics project that the four of us have been working on. It's a project to try to understand um, uh, how oral poetics and oral poetic creativity, um, how the principles of such creativity can be embodied in a computer system. We have a lot of computer systems uh, that have been developed since the 1970s that are uh, storytelling systems, we're told. Systems like Tailspin, Universe, Minstrel, uh, Mexica by uh, Rafael Perez y Perez. Um, um, and these are very interesting systems in a lot of ways, but uh, one thing that we've noticed upon uh, looking into them is they are not storytelling systems. They're not telling systems. They're not oral systems. In fact, Mexica, which uh, is a, a system I like a great deal, and Mexica's output has also been published in the Using Electricity series, um, specifically models the creative writing process and specifics of the engagement reflection cycle that's specific to writing. So these systems are all developed within a framework of literate culture. If we think about like Walter Ong and Eric Havlock and people who have studied primary oral cultures and the way creativity happens in those, um, we find that they're very different principles. So trying to understand um, some of these early texts that relate to orality and that give us insight into orality, um, the epics of Homer, for instance, or trying to understand contemporary oral poetic practices. We don't live in a primary oral culture. We live in a literate culture. But there are plenty of compelling primary oral practices that happen in our own American culture, right? And so freestyle rap, uh, composing rap lyrics without writing them down, composing bars of rap, um, and uh, rapping in a cipher. These are sort of things that um, no one thought that was funny, creative common. <laughs> anyway, okay, anyway, um, <laughs> these, are things, <laughs> these are things that are uh, very, very productive and generative sort of ideas. And how does that happen in an orally grounded way? Well, what we've been looking at is uh, I always try to find the very, very simplest way you can approach a problem like this. And I said, well, what if we had an oral poetic game in which you can only add one word at each step? You know, there are these sort of oral poetic games and improv games, tell a story one word at a time and so forth. Okay, so the one we use, it's called Chain Reaction. It's documented in a book from 2004. I didn't make it up. It exists out in the world. And uh, it goes like this. Someone would start off and say, post office. The next player, assuming that the game goes along successfully, says something like, post office chair, then post office chairman, post office chairman child, post office chairman child labor. And then, if you, and then interestingly, actually, if you were in the UK, you might be much more inclined to say post office chairman child labor party. If you were in the US, you might be much more inclined to say post office chairman child labor law. 
right? So uh, the thing that you say, even though you're speaking the same language, might be culturally influenced, and it might also be influenced by your own idiosyncratic sort of creative process. So there is room for creativity, even though this game is very simple. And we have a prototype system that is able to play this game. So in these six projects, I want to propose that there is actually more overlap than not between computational poetry, computational art, and the computational humanities. These aren't easily separated. What happens to manifest itself and appear as creative computing, in some cases, is also programming as inquiry, artistic inquiry, humanistic inquiry. So uh, am I the only people, am I, am I uh, uh, the only person, are there no other people who have noticed that this stuff is, is going on and who have talked about uh, programming? Uh, and uh, of course the answer is no. There's uh, people who um, uh, uh, talk about, here's, here's a speech, a transcript of a short speech, September 15th. This is uh, Joris van Zundert. I don't know who he is except for his uh, brilliant blog post that I just ran across. Um, his uh, talk was called Programming Humanists. What is the role of coding literacy in DH and why does it matter? So um, uh, look at this, over in Belgium, people are talking about this. It's coming to the attention of people in Europe. In fact, a lot of Europeans are looking right now to create this initiative the Computational Humanities Research uh, Journal, the JCHR. Um, and here particularly looking at use of computational methods in, in the humanities by a wide variety of scholars. So there is a work going on. Um, I think that could be more manifest in the United States. Um, and for that matter, uh, it could uh, be more visible in what we do at MIT. Uh, we have the ability to push beyond um, the standard ideas. So with that, um, let me invite you to ask me to take a look at any of these systems. We can bring them up and we can talk about all of these. Not, I, I'm not ready for oral poetics, although we could play the game if you wanted to. Um, uh, to ask me questions about this, to um, interject and discuss anything that you have to, uh, uh, to offer in response. Um, I'm glad, you know, just, just to be clear, like I'm glad to show you P5JS if you want to see what that's like. I will have to get it on the, um, on the display that you can see. Um, let me do that first and then I'll be able to there we go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, any um, anything you want to know about these six projects in particular? Um, if you want to know more about the type of stuff I do, I'll share one of my um, digital poetry, digital art projects. If you want to see something else, it's on my website is nickm.com, as it says there, and welcome to go visit there. Um, yeah. 
Actually, I have a question. Um, how do you see your work across different languages? So, for uh -huh. example, what if we were to run similar projects in Chinese or yeah. in Arabic? How different would that look like, given that most programming languages seem to be functioning in English? So, I think that's a very good question. Um, one of my projects is right here. It is called, um, well, it's called uh, the digit two, the multiplication sign, and the digit six, which can be read a different way in all six of these languages. And so this is a project I did with six collaborators. Um, I created a very, very simple and small text generation system, a one kilobyte program. Uh, that's the one in the upper left. And then it was translated, but also recreated. And my fellow collaborators here are not just credited as translators, but as co-authors um, in French, Spanish, Russian, Japanese, and Polish. So this work does exist across languages, and I've done work in translation of other computational poetry into English. And I've had work of mine that's been um, uh, developed translinguistically and translated. Um, so this project is specifically investigating some things about, uh, about language. Um, and uh, I can tell you that what happens here at a high level is that uh, two characters are introduced in the first line of each of these, these are stories that are also stanzas. I call them stanzories. So in each of these stanzories, two characters are introduced, but their gender is not mentioned. In the second line, there are masculine and feminine pronouns that come up at random. So he, he surrenders to her, um, he defies him, right? And so at that point, if you're really reading it, and I'm not making these things for people who aren't really reading them. I'm making them for those who actually want to read and interpret and understand. So if you're really reading it, you need to make sense of that reference and figure out who's who. If it says, um, uh, the librarian turned to the indigent, right? uh, she defied him. Who is, who is the she? Who is the him? What do you think? I could do a Google image search on librarian and we could see what the stereotype according to that is. I think there's a stereotypical belief that librarians are female in the United States. I also think there's a stereotypical b belief that indigents, also called bums, you know, uh, are male, right? Um, so there's all sorts of reasons that we might bring our own stereotypes to resolution of that. Now if you do this in French or Spanish, what are the problems? So, there's actually different problems in, in French or Spanish because in French you can ally the article so you can have these things like uh, la gente de police, but in Spanish you can't even do that. So it's even you have to, it's even more elaborate. So there needs to be things that are that are done linguistically to sort of recreate a project like this. When we did this project, also you mentioned the fact that of course the keywords of a programming language like JavaScript like JavaScript are going to be um, there's not much we can do about that. They're going to be English language keywords. But when we do this project, um, we uh, do um, give our variable and function names in the language that we've translated it into. Okay? 
even though even though we when we talk to programmers in the Polish, they're like, don't do that. You know, we, <laughs> it's like we just make we just put them in English. Actually, I mean, it's really hard because you don't have you don't have the accents. You, right? you, you don't you can't have diacritical marks and so forth. So anyway, I said I said a lot about that, but I hope I I gave you a reasonable answer. Yeah, Jules. Um, Marjorie and I are I, I we are interested in the question of tuning. When mm -hmm. you say you're tuning a work like this, mm -hmm. I'm assuming you mean you're changing the the, the inputs and you're changing the code it, it, and seeing what it happens. Yeah, you might even sure you might even only change parameters. So one of the things about uh, this particular material instantiation. So this also exists as a book, okay. but there's a book publication from Le Figue Press in Los Angeles. Um, However, this particular material instantiation of, uh, of um, Los Dos, this is a Spanish version that we're looking at, um, it moves forward at a certain pace. It scrolls upwards at a certain pace. So part of the process of tuning this might just be changing a number, changing that parameter, to see like how much time there is between stanzores. Right. Yeah. We are really reading it and figuring out what we think Right. We need more time. Or so that could be, yeah, that could be part of the process of tuning, for instance. But yes, it could certainly also involve making changes to code, making changes to uh, figuring out what the source uh, uh, material is and and um, how to uh, how to deal with this. But uh, I think of that as you know, I, I would just use that to describe a finer grained sort of thing than reconceptualizing the project. Yeah, I'm also curious about inputs from the reader. Mm -hmm. This is not an interactive program, so there are no inputs. Yes, yes. Uh, the way that someone, and in fact, the way that all of my collaborators engaged with this project was to um, engage with uh, this page of it. Because one of the things you can do is you can take the source code. My projects are all offered as free Libre open source software. They're very short. I mean, I'm not bragging about it. It's just I give the stuff away. And I put, an ex I put an explicit license here that says anyone can take this and do whatever they like. You can take it and make it the basis for your own project if you want. So if you want to interact with this, take the source code and make something else out of it. Right? So for that type of project, that is a means of interactivity. There are projects that I've done which are interactive, including interactive fiction, including my collaboration with Stephanie Strickland, See and Spar Between. Um, so, uh, and of course, the deletionist is is um, is um, well. What should we look at? Actually, whatever we have on the screen, we can we can run it on. <laughs> so, yeah, we can do that. There you go. Um, <laughs> so that's the deletionist run on the two. Um, and this stuff that's coming up from the bottom is like the new things that have been generated since I ran the deletionist. Right, door, him, laughter, pedestrian, her, laughter. Anyway. Nothing is random about it. Okay. It has no, I can show, I can prove it to you. There's no, the word random does not occur. There's no call to any random function in the code. So, so how do you So there are a set of different uh, particular methods for erasure. 
um, several, some of which we made up in various ways, some of which were based on things we saw. So there are books like um, there's a Heart of Darkness erasure, and there's Derek Ballou's recent project, A, a novel, where uh, everything but the punctuation marks, or Gertrude Stein's On Punctuation that Kenny Goldsmith did, everything but the punctuation marks are removed. Right? So that's one of our techniques. Okay? And uh, so, so when we observe something that we sort of could systematically define, like what the author is doing that, and it, and it was formal enough uh, for us to model, we put that into the system. Right? And then there's things to do, there were sort of desiderata that the system has in terms of like, we would like to have a certain number of words. Uh, we, don't want, we don't want to erase very little or erase everything. Right? So if we go and um, um, find, here's, here's Moby Dick from Project Gutenberg. If we run the deletionist on this, It uses alliteration in K. There are very few words in English that start with K. But uh, Moby Dick also happens to be rather long. So by using a, uh, this technique that eliminates very, very many words, we get a text that results that's sort of a reasonable size. So that's one of the ways that this is selected. You mentioned that they're also, it's deterministic, kind of based on what the text is mm -hmm. that it's run on. Uh, what method do you use to kind of achieve that? Well, that was what I was explaining, that there are desiderata such as um, on a very, very long text, then it, the, the selection will be what's going to happen if I apply each of these methods, how much text is going to result, for instance. So that's one of the ways that uh, a technique is selected. There it is. It still erases everything but the words beginning in K. Okay. Yes. Um, so you, you, you have shown these uh, text-based uh, projects, but uh, mm -hmm. are there any projects uh, that are visual? Oh, sure. Well, first of all, P5JS isn't text-based. Okay. Right? P5JS is a, is, a, is a visual project. It's an environment for doing visual art, like that flower that you saw, right? And so here, here it is. This is a P5JS web editor. And I can, you know, I can just start here and like, let's say I want to, uh, there's, a, there's a rectangle. I'm drawing, I've, I've drawn this, I've already, the background is a certain color and, and, okay, now I made the rectangle smaller. Used to be 360, 360 in width and height. I made it 30, 30. Um, so which is the width and which is the height? We don't know, but we could try it out. I mean, why not just like make one of them 60? We'll make the first one 60, 60, 30. Okay, I guess the first one, I guess the first one is the width. It's x, y, that makes sense, okay. And then what do we want to do? Well, let's, let's uh, actually, let's use um, iteration to draw this rectangle many times. We say four uh, var i equals zero, i is less than 40, um, i plus plus. All right, and then uh, within that loop that's going to happen 40 times, um, we want to draw the rectangle. Um, so we can do that, but then we'll just be drawing it 40 times on itself. So that's not very interesting. So instead, maybe we'll say, okay, well, let's draw it and let's move the, uh, the left uh, point each time. So we'll say 20 plus 
i, and then we get okay. Oh, in fact, it draws it draws just one pixel at a time because we're moving it by one. So we can move it by well, let's let's say i times times five. Okay. Oh, there we go. Now we're drawing that rectangle over further. Uh, well, we can actually do it that vertically as well as horizontally. Plus i times five. All right. There it is. Right, and then uh, well, I mean, it doesn't have to be the same vertical and horizontal rate. So I'm going to i plus seven vertically. Well, okay, there we go. We're able to do that. And uh, okay, and hey, you know we like randomness. Everybody likes randomness. Um, one of the reasons that I make deterministic uh, digital art and poetry is just as a demonstration that randomness is not an essential property of computing. Things don't have to be random, and there are lots of interesting things that aren't random. That said. Hey, let's have some fun with randomness. Okay, so let's say ma uh, let's say rect. No, I messed up. But look at that. Control Z lets me go back to where I was before, just like just like in the rest of our life with computers. Okay, so let's say that instead of saying twenty plus i times five, uh, we say um, twenty plus uh, math random. Um, Parents, parents times 340. So that gives us a range of possibilities from, from left to right. And let's do the same thing from top to bottom. And let's, uh, I'm going to make this square again, just for kicks. Let's see what happens. Ah, oh, sorry, I didn't give you a, uh, I didn't give you a, a seizure warning. But, uh, oh, but it looks like this is actually, somehow we got animation here of some sort for free. What's going on? Well, we put something in the function. There's a function setup and a function draw. Let's take this and let's put our stuff that's in draw up in setup. Ah, now it draws it once. And when we click it again, it draws it again in a different position. Okay? Um, anyway, that's some of the stuff you can do with P5. Just open it up, you know, and program in P5.js. You can do this. And this is, yeah, Jim? Oh, so you're a poet, but you're also a critic and a historian. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, one of the things uh, that because <laughs> I'm part of these communities, um, which are really not united by, I mean, they're not like uh, 20th century avant-garde movements that have their manifestos about how art should be. There are groups like the Electronic Literature Organization, uh, like the local uh, People's Republic of Interactive Fiction, which is the interactive fiction group. And so, what people have in common is their interest in uh, digital media and trying to explore it and see what can be done. And um, um, in some ways, it's sort of it's like a, it's a it's a migration rather than it's a, a movement in the in the particular sense. So I'm not trying to dodge your question, but I'm also you know trying to say that there's a lot a, a lot of discourse and community around people who don't particularly share the same aesthetics. Um,
from my standpoint, you know, I'm, I mean, one of the things that interests me, uh, I'll just show you the way that some of my work um, looks, and, and I'll show you Autopia, a somewhat recent project. And uh, so Autopia is um, uh, a very, very simple text generator system. And so one thing you can see is that uh, it, you know, it actually looks very much like uh, this monospace, like a terminal window or something like this, right? Which I think is fine. I don't think that looks ugly. So I actually prefer some, you know, oftentimes to have very spare um, uh, presentation of work, sort of minimal uh, presentation of work, not being embarrassed about how the computer has presented itself historically. And, and still, when we open up a terminal window and work in it, um, how it operates. Mm -hmm. And other people you know, want to engage with multimedia capabilities, which is fine. But just like I sometimes write these deterministic pieces that don't use randomness, I think it's important to understand that multimedia is an option when it comes to computing. It's not a requirement. And so you can be conscious about wanting to do that or not. And in many cases, my work, I don't want to put, does it, I don't know if people, I can read a little bit of this. Um, uh, Phoenix aspires, Regal Pathfinder golfs, Mountaineers acclaim Coopers, Matador esteems Envoy, Freelanders laser Imperial Austin, Premier Cougars quest, Navigator escorts suburban escorts. Noble Rangers club wagon. I'm not, I don't know if anyone understands the, where the lexicon for this work is sourced from. Scott, you, these are things you have to avoid when you're biking? That's right. <laughs> yeah. So these are, these are all, these are actually, this is entirely made of the names of cars, the singular and plural names of cars. There are no other lexemes in the entire work. Uh, and so these are short headlines. Um, and so, but you see these stories, graduates esteem Navajo, right? And so I sort of, I, maybe that's a, a, someone from the Navajo people who just, you know, gave a, a great uh, commencement speech. You know, I, so there's, there's these things that come up, and actually a lot of them do deal with like encounters between uh, 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 colonialists, you know, uh, people and uh, native people, because that's those, those are we name our cars things like explorer, uh, you know, villager, uh, and um, as well as uh, Cherokee and so forth. I like and one of my and, and then you know Amigos Ford Rio is another one that is produced by this. And, and perhaps the most appropriate for MIT um, uh, is uh, um, uh, Maxima uh, Fit Matrix Axiom, <laughs> right? So I'm, I'm very interested. This is generated by a semantic grammar, sort of unusual type of structure, but very simple. It's, it's only a few pages of code. It's very simple. So the simplicity of this project is part of it. And it's really connected for me to my educational project I don't want to dazzle people, but I, I, I mean, I love it when people think I'm clever, but I don't want to dazzle people by giving them something extraordinarily complex and elaborate. This is why, I, you know, I find a lot of the 
the AI GPT-2 stuff is, to me, it's distasteful, you know, and the stuff isn't very good, and you're just throwing literally a lot of energy um, and complexity at something that if you were doing it more simply, you'd be able to uh, produce a more beautiful and compelling and provocative result. And so having like the small amount of code and That's it. That's the entire program right there. It's not that this is not Microsoft Windows. This is not, you know, um, Red Dead Redemption 2 or something. This is a very, very small program, right? And so having all of that um, is um, uh, one of the things that's important to me and that people have, to my knowledge, no one has sort of taken this up and remixed it or decided to translate it or whatever else, whatever that would even mean, right? Um, but they can if they want to. It's licenses, free software, it's available to. So that is part of my own poetics, is to have, is, it's not just what this screen looks like, but also what that screen looks like, the source code. And in fact, it probably relates to the fact that the type, typography of this screen and the typography of, um, of this screen look a lot alike, right? Ah, it's a good question. I, I didn't exclude that possibility, did I? <laughs> yeah. So this work actually has, um, I would say, three main manifestations. So one of them is, um, in fact, I guess it's a question as to which ma manifestation we have right now. One of them is a, as, as a gallery exhibit where it can be placed, so this is in Boston City Hall, and this is running you know, on a flat panel display, and so it can be sitting in a gallery. Um, one of them is encountering it um, on the web, and um, um, on the one hand, it's very easy to get to it on the web, and you can grab the code, which is very nice, um, but if you just go to it in your typical sort of uh, rapid uh, hyper-attention web surfing type of mode, you actually might not enjoy it as much as if you were to see it in a gallery and possibly sit and, or stand and, uh, and try to read and look at it for a while. And the other manifestation is that um, uh, there is a, um, oh, there's a link here, I can just use that, is that um, my, uh, one of my publishers, um, uh, Troll Thread, um, published a book um, which is a, a 256-page book that is just full of these uh, headline-like uh, productions. So it does have the code at the end too. Yeah, um, those are different manifestations of the work, um, and I think I would say that if you don't, if you if you were to. Um, um, you know, it's, it's important, yeah, I mean, um, if I showed you a printed page of its output, you didn't have access to the code, that's really more documentation of the project than it is the project itself or a manifestation of the project. Yes, Scott. Um, do you think that computational art, broadly poetry, literature, um, 
constitutes a, a novel or a different vision of the audience in any way? Hmm. I mean, um, or or is it so? Or is it the notion of the audience unchanged? Well, one of the things when you talk about poetry and book publishing and everything, and this is something that Walter on, this is something that comes up, you know, in our studies of oral poetics, right? What, what do you mean audience? You say this book has an audience. Wait, hold on. An audience is people who are, you're an audience, you're listening, but the book doesn't have an audience. The book has a readership, which doesn't, and, but that sounds weird, like readership is a funky thing, and they're not even people who know each other and so forth, but the audience is all you know, together in one room. So I, I mean, I think that digital art has something that is not an audience um, or a readership. Um, it's not the visitors to a gallery uh, in general. Some of the work is installation work, or you know, but, um, but no, it's something else, like net art um, projects and various digital poetry projects that are accessible in different ways and projects that invite themselves to be recreated, to be studied you know, as code and to be reworked as computer programs. Um, that definitely calls, that's a different group of people than what we think of as an audience or a readership, right? Uh, a viewership, a programmership. Yes. Paul. I noticed the kind of emphasis on brevity and simplicity and kind of minimalism, maybe, or depending on how you framework it. Yeah. Um, but you, you gave a few potential reasons for that, the, the beauty of it, the economy of it, sure. energy use, uh, maybe there's other things as well. So I was curious if that's a common theme in the larger world of computational poetry, and is there the inverse of that, a kind of maximalist approach to, to yeah. programs as well? It is not what everyone does. Alison Parrish's work, for instance, on her book Articulations, also in the Using Electricity series, uses a massive corpus of verse from Project Gutenberg, which she assembled, and I, which I believe, interestingly enough, is the first uh, corpus of text that is a lineated corpus that is actually where the lines are the units. Um, and so that, you know, being a, a large corpus-based project is a different approach. Um, uh, I, all, for that matter, Rafael Perez y Perez's work on Mexica, I mean, he has a very elaborate uh, system that uh, is AI system has been developed over 20 years. Um, so there are, there are different approaches. I want, you know, part of the reason I highlight the simple ones um, and the reason I do that type of work myself very often um, is also to make it clear that, uh, you know, part of my agenda here is to show that being a programmer uh, doesn't have to mean, uh, you know, working as a software engineer on a massively scaled project. It can mean uh, exploration with a page-long computer program that can come up, you know, and do something interesting. I mean, one of my pieces, um, uh, Taroko Gorge, which is a page-long computer program, um, is uh, a piece um, that has been rewritten and revised by, well, actually, I mean, all of these people, but it's also done often as a class project. So Taroko Gorge is um, uh, essentially, a, it, it's a, probably my most conservative work. It's not an experimental writing work really at all. I mean, it, it keeps on generating text forever, but it's, it's just basically an, like a nature poem about a beautiful place in 
the East, written by a white guy. You know, it's like this, it's basically Gary Snyder automated or something like that, right? And so, so I did, I mean, I did go to this actual place. I did see it. And so, you know, then it happened that Scott Repper decided to write a, a version of this called Tokyo Garage, um, which is about a place he's never been to, he's ne he, or he hadn't at the time when he wrote this. And it was all about his feverish Western imagination of what Tokyo would be like based on media representations and everything, right? And, uh, and then other people like uh, uh, J.R. Carpenter, she did a piece called, uh, called Gorge, which is about the endless consumption and disgusting uh, uh, eating and sort of looking at that way that this goes on and on. Um, sorry for those who still have their, their pizza. Um, so, you know, I think that's, that's one of the virtues of writing um, these short pieces and uh, since I see those virtues, I like to emphasize that. But that's not all that's going on in uh, computational poetry and art and computational humanities. Um, and in fact, I mean, Curveship is not a small system. It's thousands of lines of code. Uh, P5JS is not a small system. Um, so not everything that I presented or talked about is very compact. Well, one thing I want to mention is that the, um, the book, Exploratory Programming for the Arts and Humanities, um, is going to be, if all goes well, uh, released in its second edition um, in about a year. And that edition will be available open access, just like I like free software. I like for uh, books to be open access, Creative Commons. So um, anyone is welcome to dip into that and try it out. I've actually created, I've written that book so that I think the best way to use it is to have the printed book next to your computer, just like one of those 1970s or 80s books or magazines where you type in the basic program, that you have it next to your computer and work with it that way. But there's many people in the world who can't afford or get to MIT Press books despite the broad reach of the press. And, um, uh, it will be available digitally for free if somebody wants to check it out and they're not sure they want to take the plunge. You can do that. So that's, that's upcoming um, and um, I'll probably be teaching exploratory programming for the Arts and Humanities class again, but uh, the book in any case will be out in a year. So that's one way to see about becoming a programmer poet, programmer artist, programmer humanist. I bet no one is going to uh, stop me or tell us to uh, tell us to end the event unless unless I do it. So I should probably do that so that we can just chat, you know, different different ones of us. But uh, thank you very much for coming and for your attention. Thank you.